The second case for argument is Ricky Hughes versus Wisconsin Central Limited at Al. When you're ready, Mr. Gunsberg. Thank you. May it please the court, counsel. Uh, my client, Mr. Hughes, is also in the uh, courtroom. The record does not suggest that plaintiff acted with any intent to defraud creditors or to intentionally mislead or manipulate the judicial system. These are not my words. These are the words of the district court. This was the finding of the district court based on its review of the entire record in this case. After reviewing all of the evidence presented by the defendants, the district court found that there was nothing that even suggested that Mr. Hughes acted with any intent to defraud his creditors or to mislead or manipulate the courts. Based on this finding, the district court declined, initially declined, to apply the doctrine of judicial estoppel and denied defendants' motions for summary judgment. That was the correct ruling. Why? Because it was on all fours with the doctrine of judicial estoppel. In Ryan Operations GP, the court held that judicial estoppel was never meant to be used as a technical defense for litigants to derail potentially meritorious claims, particularly where an inconsistent position is a result of a good faith mistake. Rather, the doctrine should only be applied where there is evidence of intent <clears throat> to, ma to manipulate or mislead the courts, i.e. to play fast and loose with the courts. And that's why the district court properly denied defendants' motions for summary judgment on October 29, 2021. There was simply no evidence that Rick Hughes intended to defraud his creditors or to mislead or manipulate the court. How do we, why does that matter though, if you don't list it on the schedules and there's, I don't know that there's any, there's no real dispute that he probably knew he had the cause of action because he was injured before then. So I'm trying to figure out why the intent to mislead the court matters under the plain language of the statutes. Well, I, I, I don't believe that, uh, that, that there is a, a showing that, uh, that he knew of his cause of action. Uh, I knew, he knew that he was injured, and he knew that, um, and he went to somebody in the, um, um, the risk management department, Steve Moeller at, uh, at the railroad, and, and, and told him that he had been injured on the job and was there strictly to, 
to get his uh, medical bills paid for. That was the reason he was there. They had him fill out a form that uh, uh, I submit was, was ambiguous. Uh, he filled out the form, said that he uh, had a claim. It's not clear whether they were whether he was saying that he had filed a lawsuit or he intended to file a lawsuit or that he had a claim or intended to file a claim. Uh, he, I, I believe the evidence uh, indicates that uh, he was wanting to get his, his medical benefits, benefits paid for, and he was not aware uh, of any cause of action that he had. In fact, he didn't even consult an attorney until roughly a year and three quarters after, uh, you know, more than a year and a half after uh, he was discharged in bankruptcy. It was only then that, uh, uh, that he became aware that he had a FELA claim, and it was even after that, uh, uh, months after that, that his attorneys uh, realized that there was also a cause of action for, for product, strict product liability. Is there anything, though, in the statute? I guess you, you are disputing that, so we get to the next question, which is, is there anything in the statutory scheme that shows intent to hide makes a difference? I, I read it as if the claim exists, even if you, know, even if you potentially uh, haven't vindicated it yet, that you still have to list it on the, potentially list it on the schedules as a potential claim. I mean, I'm no bankruptcy expert, but that's my but, sense. And, and, and I'm not either. But, but I, I agree that if Mr. Uh, uh, Hughes became aware that he had a claim, knew that he had a claim, then yes, it, it needed to be listed. Uh, I'm, I'm suggesting to you that based on the evidence and based on the finding of the district court, there was no evidence that, that he was uh, aware of his claim. The district court had, when it made its ruling on October 29, 2021, uh, denying defendant's motion for summary judgment and specifically stating that there was no evidence of any intent to defraud creditors or to mislead or, or uh, manipulate the courts, the district court had a copy of that application for sickness benefits. It was part of the record. And, and, the, and, and yet the court still ruled that there was no evidence uh, uh, of intent to defraud creditors or to manip manipulate the court, so you know I don't believe that um, I, I don't believe that that Mr. Uh, Hughes was aware of his claims uh, at uh, at the time he filled out that form. If he had been, yes, it would have been required. Uh, it was required that they be disclosed. Well, let me ask you this: I I want to make sure I understand how FILA works. Um, if he, he, we have these two applications for sick benefits, sickness benefits, um, if a person is injured on the job, and in this case he's working for the Canadian um, uh, railroad company, do they have to file a, a do they have to file a lawsuit to get paid sick benefits for their for their work related injury? Not, not if that if the if the company voluntarily pays well, but I mean, let's benefits. say is is that the problem here? They wouldn't pay it. Is that why he had to file this application? Uh, no, Your Honor. I, I think that I think that his benefits uh, uh, were being paid, but well, I think well, he what had was to the purpose? I guess I'm at what I'm sure. maybe I'm not being very articulate. What was the purpose of the application? Well. My understanding is, and, and I don't know the internal workings of, of Wisconsin Central or Canadian National, uh, but my understanding is, is that uh, 
uh, when, when you're injured on the job, and if you want to get certain uh, medical benefits, sickness benefits, you have to go in and, and you have to fill out an application for that. That's not, that's not the same as, as filing a FELA claim. And there is nothing in the application that even discussed FELA. So, and I was kind of struggling with this a little bit when I was looking at the documents too, uh, mainly because FELA is sort of outside my ordinary scope of practice, both as a lawyer and as a trial judge. I, mean, I think I have a couple FELA cases in my lifetime. But when I looked at them, I said, is this, is this uh, the, the sickness claim, is that like uh, uh, a med pay claim that might be made to a workers' compensation uh, carrier, uh, and what you make is a claim for just the medical pay and perhaps some some time off to recuperate, uh, as opposed to uh, a claim that uh, that seeks uh, compensation for the extent and nature and permanent nature of the injuries. Do well, you... my understanding is, and and, and again, I, my only uh, every company is different, and 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 I don't know what other railroads do with regard to to uh, injuries on the job. My understanding is, is that, that um, he was strictly seeking, by filling out this application, he understood that he was strictly seeking uh, to get his medical bills paid. If he wanted to file a FELA claim, that's something entirely different. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, uh, and, and you may recall that, uh, that the defense uh, had filed an affidavit from, from uh, a Mr. Steve Moeller, who was the risk manager, who had discussions with, uh, uh, with Mr. Hughes at the time that he filled out the application for sickness benefits. There was no, uh, Mr. Moeller never stated that he discussed filing a, uh, never discussed with Mr. Hughes that he had the right to file a FELA claim or anything involving FELA at all. Uh, so, my based on the evidence and the the evidence that was before the the district court, he filled out this application for sickness benefits because he wanted to get his medical bills paid, and and, and that was it. Uh, so, uh, I don't know if I've answered your question or your yeah. question, Your Honor. So, <clears throat> what changed after <clears throat> the the district court having? Uh, denied defendants' motions for summary judgment on October 29, 2021. What changed between then and February 2, 2023, when the district court reversed course uh, and granted defendants' motion for summary judgment? Uh, I submit that essentially nothing changed during that time. There was no new evidence that was presented to the district court from which the district court could now infer that there was some intent to defraud creditors or manipulate the judicial system. Uh, there was no new evidence. The only new evidence that the court uh, was presented with was the ruling of the bankruptcy court that found that while it could not approve the settlement between Mr. Hughes and the trustee because more than five years had elapsed since the first payout under the plan, the court nevertheless determined that there was no harm to the creditors by the failure to disclose the claims during the bankruptcy proceedings because the creditors never could have collected any money in this case because 
any money would have been paid out more than five years after the first payout under the plan. Is that true, though? Because um, in, in other cases, they, the suggestion has been, well, the um, trustee could have sought a quick settlement, could have realized that there was a claim here, could have sought a quick settlement, uh, could have then distributed that money to the creditors. Um, of course, now we're leaving aside the fact that you're, the claim that your client didn't know it, and that possibly the trustee wouldn't know it either. But at least disclosing it could have could have led to some more money for the creditors. Um, that possibility exists, except for the fact that 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 Mr. Hughes never consulted an attorney until you know more than a year and a half after the discharge. So who was going to be pursuing this claim on behalf of uh, of the creditors? No, I get that. But yeah. I guess the point is we have to think about not only this case, but we have to think about the next case too. And what I worry about is people holding on to their claims, never consulting an attorney, and then the day after bankruptcy, two days after bankruptcy, a year after bankruptcy, going to a lawyer and saying, oh, I've got this great claim. Yeah, you've got this great claim worth a billion dollars and the creditors are left out. That's the whole purpose of listing the assets on the schedules. And, and, I, and I agree. Yeah. And, and I agree with that. But, but in this instance, I, I don't think that, that there's any evidence of, of chicanery or that he in, intended to, that he knew about his claim and that he intended to hold back so he could file it later. No plaintiff in his right mind, I submit, would wait until a few days before uh, the expiration of a statute of limitations uh, to, to file a claim. I don't think he, he didn't know about it. You know, and it just happenstance that, uh, that uh, you know, he did consult an attorney uh, in time. Uh, Your Honors, unless there's any other questions, I wanted to reserve my remaining time for... I, for I do have sure. one question. Sure. Um, Judge Frank, to some extent, certainly relied upon Judge Fisher's bankruptcy court order. Do we, do we take that as the law of the case, whatever the bankruptcy judge said about this particular situation? I believe so, Your Honor. I believe so. I think that uh, the, the, the uh, Judge Frank specifically stated that and, and, and denied the motion for summary judgment initially without prejudice because he wanted uh, the bankruptcy court to weigh in. Uh, on, on the issues which the bankruptcy court was was better prepared to to address, and, and, at, and at least one of the parties here was a participant in the bankruptcy proceeding, right? Portico, the bankrupt, the yes, Portico was a participant until uh, until uh, Portico, the court ruled that Portico lacked standing to to raise any objection. Um, with regard, just quickly, with regard to standing, I submit that uh, that. Uh, the, the law of the case is what Judge Fisher stated, that the uh, lawsuit vested in the debtor upon discharge, which was uh, December of uh, 2018. Your Honor, I, I've only got about 30 seconds left, so if I can reserve that for rebuttal. You may. Thank you. Mr. Geller, when you're ready. Thank you, Your Honor. I'm Les Gelhar, representing the Wisconsin Central. May it please the court, um, counsel for appellant and counsel for co-defendant appellees. Um, I think it's, it's clear from the record that the first three, the New Hampshire factors, the first three New Hampshire factors are established. The inconsistent positions, the acceptance of those positions in the first proceedings, 
and the fact that that acceptance benefited um, Mr. Hughes, potentially to the detriment of others, certainly to the detriment of his um, creditors. What the judicial estoppel part of this case um, is all about, really, is this notion of inadvertence or chicanery or Well, let me go back. You said it's obvious it's to the detriment of his creditors, but Judge Fisher said no, it wasn't to the detriment of his creditors. And that's why I'm concerned about what is the, yeah. let me uh, touch, the effect of that order. Let me touch on that real briefly. I'd like to point out to the court, and I should have, um, Mr. Nissen will be addressing in a more fulsome manner the bankruptcy questions, I believe. Um, I, I don't agree that that is um, necessary to Judge Fisher's decision. I believe that is dicta. Um, Judge Fisher's decision was um, that he had no power to um, act on this stipulation that was in front of him with the trustee, where Mr. Hughes promised to voluntarily make whole his creditors because of a statute of limitations in the bankruptcy context. There are the 50 months. Um, well, and, and that's the point. Um, Judge Fisher said there can be no distribution to the creditors because actually one of the in accidents occurred more than 60 months after the start of the plan. So that accident alone was outside the plan period. One of the accidents wasn't. The earlier one was within. But he said it, even if it had been disclosed, there could be no distribution. Um, the discharge did not occur until February of 2018. Well, no, but his concern was not the discharge. It was the 60-month plan period, and he went through quite an analysis as to why there can be no distribution after the 60th month. There, and that even, I guess I'm having trouble with it. When you have an accident that's after the 60th month, how does that? The, um, there were two options still left to the trustee had he been informed properly before um, the discharge was granted. One of those options would be to move to dismiss the case in its entirety. Perhaps he could have moved to um, convert it to a Chapter 7 and taken control of the um, assets that way. Um, I think the thing we cannot lose sight of here, though, is back to um, the estoppel part of it, which I think has to be decided, and that is how can this possibly be um, found to be different than Jones or Van Horn, the situations there? And this court has found in a number of settings, number of different cases, that for the inadvertence argument, what we look at is no knowledge of the claims or no in motive to conceal. Motive to conceal is not the same as chicanery. It is knowledge that you have, may have a valuable claim. And such as in the EEOC context, you get the right to sue letter. That is proof positive. You knew you have a claim. But also in that context, these are valuable claims. Um, now we're left with these RRB, Railroad Retirement Board, forms. How did they get in the record? We put them in the record, Your Honor. We put them in the record after... Mr. Hughes submitted an affidavit saying he had no knowledge. They clearly show he had knowledge. And those forms are declarations under oath, and they're given to a federal agency. They are not railroad Wisconsin Central forms. They are to get sickness benefits under the Railroad Retirement Act. 
Suppose that you, that, uh, you don't discover the, discover the injury, so it's a black lung type of, of case or something like that, so five years later you get, you get uh, uh, some, some sort of cancer. Would that be a different case than one in which you've actually gotten forms saying that you potentially have an injury and a claim? No, it goes to his knowledge. It goes, here we have proof that he had knowledge of these claims. Right, and That's I'm asking, does it extend to something where you discover an injury five years or more than five years later? Those are different facts, though, that I'm not sure how it would work out, and they are not in this case. But in this case, we have a record where this man certified under oath to the federal government that I have a claim, and I intend to pursue, pursue that claim or a lawsuit against the railroad I work for. Um, now he has submitted an affidavit saying, oh, I didn't understand that. So we have a double problem here. Now we have a record where this gentleman has certified for the Railroad Retirement Board, I'm going to pursue a claim. What's the purpose of that? That's so they can get their money back out of the railroad when the railroad pays the results of that settlement. All right. Okay. Do you have any questions? No. Very good. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Nissen? Good morning, Your Honors. My name is Todd Nissen. I represent Portico. May it please the court and the counsel. The U.S. District Court for Minnesota correctly ruled that Mr. Hughes does not have standing to pursue the subject personal injury claims. The personal injury claims arose during the pendency of his bankruptcy, and thus they automatically became property of the bankruptcy estate. A debtor cannot litigate claims that are part of the bankruptcy estate for his own personal interests. However, a debtor may litigate claims as long as it's on behalf of the estate. In this situation, Mr. Hughes did the former and not the latter. It's well, shown that, by that, three that, factors. That's one of the reasons I asked about the effect of the bankruptcy court order, and, and it may not, you know, I don't know if you're challenging it or not, but, but Judge Fisher said that, that the claims vested in the debtor? Well, Your Honor, um, maybe I can address the vesting argument quickly here. So the, it's true that the bankruptcy judge did reference vesting in his order. However, that is at best dicta. The bankruptcy court was asked to decide whether or not to approve a settlement agreement between Mr. Hughes and the trustee. Deciding whether the personal injury claims vested in Mr. Hughes was not briefed and was not necessary when ruling on the proposed settlement. So you're saying even putting aside any law of the case argument, you're saying he's wrong. It doesn't vest in the debtor upon discharge? Well, that's a different issue than standing. So vesting does not equal standing, and vesting does not equal ownership. Vesting is more like possession. Property frequently becomes property of a bankruptcy estate even after vesting in a debtor, such as a paycheck. Okay, that's, or that's, I think that's just wrong. If, it vests, if, if it's a vest back in the debtor, it's his property. And that's, I think that's just flat out wrong. Um, the, two, two things, Your Honor. 
Number one is, is that the, it's the, under 11 U.S.C. 1306A1, the property is part of the estate. And, and, the, the, and, the, and the property never transfers out of the state for three reasons. Number one is, and the most important, Mr. Hughes did not schedule it. If Mr. Hughes would have scheduled this property and given the bankruptcy judge, trustee, and creditors an opportunity to analyze and administer it, then it's possible that could have been the results. We don't know because they were never given that opportunity. Secondly, the trustee did not abandon the property to, to Mr. Hughes because the trustee cannot decide to abandon something he doesn't know about. And the trustee, when he did find out about these claims, didn't brush them aside, didn't take actions to abandon them. To the contrary, he took actions to try to get back in front of the bankruptcy judge and get this um, uh, agreement uh, with Mr. Hughes affirmed. That didn't work. It was denied. And it was the too law, late, right? I mean, at that point, it was too late. That's the reason why the, it had been beyond the five years, so the district court lacked jurisdiction, or excuse me, the bankruptcy court lacked jurisdiction. Yes, Your Honor. So basically what happened, the claims timed out. They remain bankruptcy estate property, and they timed out, just like a statute of limitations or a statute of repose, or other times where claims expire, and that's what happened. But that doesn't mean that a debtor, I mean, think of the public policy. The law cannot be that a debtor can go have claims or assets that are part of a bankruptcy estate, not disclose them, and then once the five years, 60-month period runs, wait and make claims and, and take those claims free and clear for their personal benefit to do with whatever they want. And the reason is, is because that would encourage debtors not to disclose their assets. It would encourage them to violate the, law, the bankruptcy code requirements in that law. It would also incentivize future debtors to also either, to, to not disclose their assets for whatever reason. So the law cannot be that, th th that this would be um, um, permitted because of we don't want to reward bad acts. We don't want to incentivize other people to, um, I'm running out of time here, not to divulge their claims. Thank you. Mr. Tank Johnson, when you're ready. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court, counsel. I'm Ray Tank Johnson. I represent Appellee Racine Railroad Products Incorporated. Mr. Hughes' filing for bankruptcy results in his lack of standing to pursue personal injury claims in this case, and his failure to disclose his injury claims with the bankruptcy court results in the claims being barred by judicial estoppel. His attempt to correct the omission in the bankruptcy court was denied by that court as untimely. And Mr. Hughes claims the district court erred because he's an unsophisticated plaintiff and that he didn't knowingly intend harm. However, the district court properly applied the law that malicious intent is not required here. In Eastman versus Union Pacific, 
The court held that where a debtor has knowledge of claims and a motive to conceal, courts infer deliberate manipulation. Now, motive to conceal does not mean an active intent to conceal, and I don't think that the court has a way to discover that. And that is why the district court judge here said there's no evidence of intent. Don't don't district courts and juries find facts uh, that people would argue you have no way of knowing because you can't crawl inside someone's head. I mean, the bottom line is those decisions are made every single day in every single criminal case that requires specific intent. They're made every single day in uh, civil claims in which intent is an element of proof. I mean, people can draw reasonable inferences from all the facts and circumstances and the, and the, and the, uh, um, and the, uh, uh, the, the testimony given and they can decide what's the finer fact gets to decide what's reasonable and what's not reasonable, right? Um, yes, it seems honest. to me that motive to conceal is actually talking about motive, which is in some way, uh, tied to intent, even if only obliquely. I think Why it, am I wrong? I think you're right that it is obliquely in, uh, uh, tied to intent, but it is not the same thing. Intent, as you say, juries decide that all the time. We're here in a different context because we're on summary judgment, and we need to know whether or not the laws regarding judicial estoppel will apply. Intent is not is required that a, is, under that. And is that a preconditional fact-finding that needs to be made under Rule 104? Not at all. It's okay. not even mentioned in the standards uh, under Eastman. It's not part of the, the law required. There is reference to the fact that malicious intent is not required. Can I ask Court you? specifically held that. Sorry. I want you to finish. No, please okay, finish. Yes. Okay. Um, Unless you you have more to say to... Uh, Well, I was going to say about intent um, being tied to motive, Your Honor. I think if, uh, as an example, if someone were to attack my dog, I might have a motive to seek revenge on that person. Um, But I don't really have the intent to act and attack that person until I actually attack the person. I understand. There is a motive for revenge. There is a motive here for Mr. Hughes to conceal his assets. All bankrupt uh, debtors have that motive. Most don't act on it. And we have laws to prevent them from doing so. And we need to have this law of judicial estoppel to prevent bad actors from doing that. I understand your argument. Okay. So I wanted to ask about the vesting point um, and what your response to that is. I'm not as convinced that that the district court actually found that it vested, Um, but I want to know what your opinion is, and I'll have a conversation with opposing counsel about that. Right. So on on the vesting... You mean the bankruptcy court. Go ahead. Sure, yeah. You meant the bankruptcy court, whether it was actually... Again, I think that... That piece is dicta. It's not required for the decision. And I don't think that the bankruptcy court actually was in a position to hold that. It wasn't briefed. And I think it was a a piece of the the decision that the court really was not in a position to make the best judgment on. In this situation, when the uh, trustee has no knowledge of the assets until it's too late, 
That is a situation where they never had access to it, and the debtor didn't either. And I see my time is up, but I think I've finished that question. Anything follow-up? No. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Gunsberg. You don't have a ton of time, so I just oh. want to... Oh, I was going to give him okay. uh, two minutes, but Sounds whatever, good. that's... Two minutes. But, oh, thank, thank yeah, you. I, I just wanted to... Uh, I know Your Honor has a question yeah. for me. Uh, I just wanted to respond briefly to uh, what uh, uh, counsel said during their arguments. Uh, I, I think that um, every case that has been cited by the defense uh, in support of the application of judicial estoppel has been is distinguishable from the facts of this case. There are no other cases out there that are similar to this case that I that I'm aware of. And uh, Mr. Gelhar referenced uh, the uh, Jones case and the Van Horn cases. In both of those cases, there were uh, EEOC claims that uh, were either had been filed. Uh, uh, either prior to the uh, the bankruptcy proceedings or during the bankruptcy bankruptcy proceedings, uh, or that there was a right to sue letter, and so that placed the the uh, the plaintiff or, or the debtor on, on notice uh, of of uh, claims. The same with uh, in both of those cases. The Eastman case is a is clearly distinguishable from this case. In that case, it was a FILA case, but in that case. Uh, the debtor, uh, not only did he have a lawsuit pending at the time that the bankruptcy had, had been uh, commenced, he got up uh, at a creditor's meeting and was specifically asked whether he has any lawsuits pending, and he denied it. He flat out lied, and from, that, from those facts, the Eastman court uh, inferred that there was intent, a deliberate manipulation. Those okay. facts, those are not the facts in this case let me, at all. Let me, I want to ask about the, uh, the vesting thing. Sure. Um, you have a heading, lawsuit vested in the debtors upon discharge. Okay, so it appears, I think it's a poorly drafted heading, but it appears that the district court makes the finding you suggest. But when you actually read the text under it, it says, since the five-year limitation itself requires denial of the motion, it does not matter if the asset never vested in the debtors because the trustee cannot distribute anything after five years. And so I think that what the district court is doing is they put it, or the bankruptcy court put a heading in there saying, I'm going to deal with this argument, and then said, made no finding whatsoever and says, it doesn't matter anyways because I can't do anything after five years. I'm just reading the plain language here. And I want, you, I want to give you a chance to respond because the only thing that supports your interpretation is the heading. No, I, I understand that. I mean, the court does cite uh, cite a case, uh, you know, in, in support of its position, but I think that uh, the 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 heading is, is very clear. I mean, the, the bankruptcy court was aware of the issues that were pending in the district court, and the bankruptcy court, uh, 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 you know, basically, I mean, I mean, it was clear as day that 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 the lawsuit vests in the debtor upon discharge. I'm not sure I agree with you, but what do you make, sorry for going over here, but it does not matter if it ever vests. That is clear language of dicta. The bankruptcy court itself is saying, I understand no matter what I decide here, it doesn't matter for this case. 
Well, you're right. It didn't, it didn't matter with regard to the, to the issue that the bankruptcy court was ruling on, which was whether to, uh, you know, uh, uh, allow the, the settlement agreement between the plaintiff and the trustee or, or not. I agree with that. But I think that the bankruptcy court went into a, a pretty lengthy discussion as to the issues in the case and, and, uh, and, and why there had been no harm to any of the uh, creditors uh, as a result of any non-disclosure, and then went further to say that, you know, uh, it, the, the claim vested in, and the, and the court cited Section 1327B of the Bankruptcy Code in support of its uh, uh, position. So, and, and, and nobody appealed that order. That was not an order that was appealed. Any further? Nope, I's good. The matter's been uh, well-briefed and well-argued, and the court will take it under advisement and issue an opinion in due course. Does that exhaust the uh, argument calendar? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, the court will stand in recess until further call of the calendar.